Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got a great show for everybody today. We're going to be focusing on three different companies that have shared some news in the last little while and actually the last one has a big upcoming readout that I think is worth talking about again. So the first company we're going to touch on is Trillium Therapeutics. By the way, congratulations everybody. We finally did it. I'm still kind of in disbelief, but the story is that Pfizer acquired Trillium Therapeutics. And if you remember some of the past videos I did, I, I really went through my bear and bull case for whether or not I should continue to hold the big Trillium position I had. And things weren't looking good there for a while. So we're going to get into more depth in that. I'm then going to talk about the drama surrounding Cassava Sciences. And for those who don't know, Cassava has... Uh, found themselves in some turmoil with the filing of a citizen's petition alleging that they have some fraud in their preclinical studies as well as some of the data they presented afterwards. So we're going to touch on that and then I'm going to follow up with um, some insights from Apellis. And the reason for this is some charts were floating around about dropouts and I wanted to touch on that and you know give my take because the readout that's coming up is going to be a huge mover for that stock and others in the geographic atrophy space. So before I jump in, I do want to thank everybody, appreciate all the support and all of the engagement that I've been getting, continue to do so, and it will help me get great guests on the show. So please click the like or subscribe button and share the show with a friend if you think they would appreciate this kind of content. And the first story I want to touch on is of course that Pfizer acquires Trillium Therapeutics. And the press release reads on August 23rd, 2021, that the proposed acquisition strengthens Pfizer's category leadership in oncology with addition of next-generation investigational immunotherapeutics for hematologic malignancies. It says that Pfizer will acquire all outstanding shares of Trillium not already owned by Pfizer for an implied equity value of $2.26 billion, or $18.50 per share, in cash. And for those who don't know, Pfizer already had an investment in the company. They took this in the fall of 2020, where they invested $25 million at $10.88 a share. And so for some of the history of this company, I mean, they traded down below a dollar, I think, a year before. And they started gaining momentum as the leadership changed and they started you know, putting their best foot forward when it came to these CD47 assets. So just after Pfizer took that interest in the company, the company went up quite a bit and their 52-week high was $19.37 a share. Now, the premium that you can see here that Pfizer paid was $18.50. So we didn't even hit the 52-week high here. That's kind of an unfortunate thing and really signals that the buyout was only a modest premium from what we have been expecting, I think, in the past. And I gave some wild predictions on what I thought the company's valuation should be as they started to see some nice data in either solid tumors or more uh, deeper into their pipeline. But this is what we ended up with, $2.26 billion, and I'm very happy with this considering the stock traded so low from that 52-week high. So I think I took my position around $5 and change, and you know, seeing the stock go to 19.37, then all the way back down to around six or seven is extremely painful. And I think you could see from that previous video I did where I explained whether or not I should hold or sell my Trillium position, I was really torn because there was going to be a lot of exciting stuff coming. 
but the lull in catalyst, I think, was just going to bleed out the position. And that is what, in fact, happened. My position went from around 200% positive down to only around like 10% positive, and it was very painful. And I ended up coming out on top here, but that isn't always going to happen in the future. So for me personally, the lesson is really take profits when you have them and when they're guaranteed. You know, there was no guarantee that Trill was going to get this buyout, that they were going to continue to see positive data moving forward. And when there's a big gap in Catalyst, it just makes it easy for the stock to slowly sell off from there. So, you know, every situation is different, every company is different. And here I ended up coming out on top. And I think the one silver lining is that now my taxes can be considered long-term gains rather than short-term gains because I held the stock for over a year. So that is one benefit. Okay, so the modest premium here, what I'm referring to also is that the acquisition of another CD47 company, the company called 47, was $4.9 billion. So to see this acquisition at around half that valuation just signals the state of small and mid-cap biotech right now. Pfizer was able to get that premium because the stock sold off so much and really small and mid-cap biotech just is doing so poorly from a valuation standpoint they were able to put together that offer and get acceptance from the Trill board, and they still have to vote on this on whether or not uh, the shareholders of Trillium are willing to accept it, but I think the odds are high that they will accept it. So when we're looking towards future M&A activity, I think we need to be careful in what kind of valuation we can seek depending on where the company is at. And Trill still being relatively early in their pipeline development it made it easy for Pfizer to come in with this offer and get that kind of acceptance. So that's the Trillium acquisition. Some people on Twitter mentioned that Pfizer's acquisitions in the past closed relatively quickly. So they're suggesting that within 45 days is pretty reasonable. And I think if you're looking at the options chain, you can get a, an option at either $17.50 or $18 for only like 50 cents or even down to like 25 cents, I think, if the expiry date is in like October. So if you wanna try and make a little bit of cash because the company's trading still at like $17.40, so there's some premium to be made there if you think that Pfizer is going to close. I think playing options for this makes a lot of sense because the downside loss isn't very much and the odds are pretty high that they will close, but you never, you never really know whether a deal is going to close so there is risk, of course. The other thing that we can take away from this is that CD47s are getting a new breath of life again. The SMID sector was hit pretty bad uh, with just no M&A activity, kind of weak catalyst coming out. But seeing an acquisition here doesn't only help the whole small and mid-cap biotech sector. It specifically helps the CD47 sector because the expectation now is that large pharma is going to follow suit and want to get in the CD47 space, given that this could be its own class of checkpoint type inhibitor molecules. Obviously, it's not the same mechanism, but it's related. You know, they're antibodies, and they do block this don't eat me signal, which can help the uh, innate immune system against cancer. So we've seen two companies now take acquisitions, Gilead with the company 47, and now Pfizer with Trillium. So other potential large pharmas to follow suit. I think good candidates are BMY, Merck, J&J, might wanna make acquisitions in the space, 
or start up their own anti-CD47 program. I think since these companies have a lot of cash on hand, it makes sense for them to make an acquisition. I think that it's exciting to see other CD47s moving up on this news. And I'm going to talk about three other companies that I like in the space and talk about their potential as an investment. The other thing I wanted to mention is that Trill always focused on how important it was for their molecule to have monotherapy activity. And this acquisition is quite validating to them because we've seen other companies that require a combination in order to see activity. But Trill was always like, hey, our molecule, it's got monotherapy activity. So you can see it right now with just a single treatment, single arm trial, where it's very easy to treat. So I think this acquisition, very validating to them. We don't know if it's totally validating when it comes to an approval standpoint, but seemingly it will also be an important point to make there. But what we can take away from this is that if drugs have monotherapy activity in particular, it does also make them a highly attractive candidate for an acquisition. Okay, there are five companies that I think are interesting who have CD47 assets. So I'm going to focus and talk in more depth on three of them, but the five that I think that are interesting that I can see are ALX Oncology, and they're sitting at a $2.9 billion market cap, but only a $2.5 billion enterprise value. And you know, if you look at the Trillium acquisition, Trill was acquired for 2.26. So ALX Oncology sitting at a $2.9 billion market cap, the bar is just higher at which a large farm is gonna have to come in and make an acquisition. So a little bit tougher there for them to do today but they are totally CD47 focused and they're at phase two in solid tumors. And solid tumors is a huge total addressable market. So there's a lot of excitement there and I think why ALX Oncology is getting such a generous valuation today. The next company is TG Therapeutics. They're sitting around a $4.3 billion market cap, but a $3.9 billion enterprise value. I've touched on them a number of times. They're commercial stage, but they do have a CD47, CD19 by specific. And they're going to be releasing early clinical data coming in Q4 of this year or Q1 of 2022. Shattuck Labs is another very interesting company that I like. They're trading at a $900 million market cap, but a $600 million enterprise value. And they're developing bifunctional proteins for numerous different targets. And they have an SIRP alpha, and they're looking at treating blood and solid tumors. And they're around phase one with a lot of readouts coming in the end of this year as well as 2022. Now there's two others that I'm not gonna to touch on. One is IMAP, they're at a $5.5 billion market cap. They have a ton of different antibodies and they're a Chinese company. AbbVie has taken a position in them, but I'm not very comfortable trading Chinese companies. I don't know much about it. And also I think there's a ton of geopolitical risk associated with Chinese companies. So for that reason, I just don't wanna be involved at all. Then. The other company that's private is called Arch Oncology, and they've raised Series C in the second quarter of this year, and they've raised $155 million to date. If they were to go public, I think it would be a very interesting company to take a position in, but because they're private, it's not really worth spending too much time on them. And with that, let's get to ALX Oncology. And like I mentioned, they're trading at a $2.9 billion market cap today. Their main asset is called ALX 148, although they've updated the name to be Avorpicept. And what it is is a high affinity anti-CD47 antibody with an inactive FC domain. And now a number of people, myself included, have touched on 
the benefits and downsides of either having an active FC domain or an inactive FC domain. So check that out if you're interested. For our purposes today, you know, either one has some kind of activity. Just the one requires a combination therapy in order to actually get uh, clinical outcomes, it seems like. Now, the one thing that we didn't touch on quite as much is the affinity of the antibody. Now, normal CD47 SIRP alpha binding affinity is around one micromolar or 1,000 nanomolar as I have here, but the binding affinity of ALX148 versus TTI621 is actually quite different. ALX148 to CD47 binding affinity is 0.14 nanomolar, and this is cell independent. So it doesn't matter which cells expressing the CD47, the binding affinity of ALX148 will be 0.14. TTI621, on the other hand, binding to the tumor expressing CD47, the binding affinity is 10 nanomolar to 1,000 nanomolar. So approaching the normal CD47 SIRP alpha binding affinity. And this is relevant because if you have an active FC domain, you're going to get macrophages that will phagocytose those cells. So TTI621, which has the active FC, being less able to bind or able to compete more with the normal binding of CD47 versus SIRP alpha means that you're going to get less phagocytetic activity than if it was a very, very high binding affinity. Now, ALX148 is able to have this really, really high binding affinity because those cells that are bound to ALX148 aren't necessarily going to get phagocytosed. So they will still have functional activity in the blood, seemingly, even though ALX148 is going to bind very tightly. Now, the downside is that the cells that are non-tumor are going to act as a sink in that they will bind to the ALX148 and therefore you're going to have to treat more ALX148 in order to make sure that the antibody is going to bind to the tumor. So all of this is kind of detailed that if you are kind of a biochemist type nerd this is important um, and I did just want to mention it because these are distinctions that change the potential behavior of the antibodies but even though it's different in that it doesn't promote as much phagocytic activity in a monotherapy it is effective in solid tumors so far. There were some safety concerns in monotherapy trials. I touched on this in a previous video. There were dose-limiting toxicities at 3 mg per kg and 10 mg per kg in combination, but these seemingly have not come up in more patient treatments. So it doesn't seem like we need to worry too much about that, even though I mentioned before that the MDS trial with ALX148 was treating as high as I think yeah, I have it here. 60 mg per kg dose, which is very high. And I was expecting that if a safety signal was going to come out, we would see it in that dose because it's so high. But we haven't seen that quite yet. So it'll be interesting this upcoming readout in the second half of this year to see how the safety bears out. The company has shown nice phase 2 data in solid tumors and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. The solid tumors that they're looking at are HER2 positive gastric cancer as well as head and neck squamous cell carcinoma. So I took a position, I think, six months or so ago when it looked like there was a nice dip in the company. And because they're seeing this nice solid tumor activity, I think it makes sense to own ALX Oncology. So the upcoming readouts that we're seeing are in the second half of this year. I mentioned that MDS trial with azacitidine 
and they have a phase one readout later this year. And like I mentioned, they're treating up to 60 mg per kg dose, and Q4W is once every four weeks. So, you know, they're very spread out doses, but I would think that if a safety signal was going to come up, it would be within that first week after treatment. So we'll see what that looks like. I think a more exciting readout, though, is this HNSCC with Keytruda Phase 1 combo readout. So I also think ALX is a good candidate for an acquisition. They are trading at a much higher valuation, which, like I said, makes the bar a lot higher for a company to come in and acquire them. But I think that there is blood in the water now and there is pressure on large pharma to acquire these assets or develop these programs so they can be competitive in the space. Moving on, I want to talk about TG Therapeutics, and they are trading in a $4.3 billion market cap. They have other programs that are CD47 unrelated. They have Uconic, which is approved for MZL and FL in later lines. Uh, U2, they're looking for approval in CLL, and they also have MS, for which they're about to file the BLA. They also have a exclusive agreement to collaborate with this company called Novimune SA on the development of an anti-CD47 CD19 bispecific and this molecule is called TG1801 or NI1701. They have two trials going on right now. One that they initiated in Q1 of 2019 and this is the first in human trial and it's open label with only 16 patients. They then initiated another trial in Q2 of 2021 and this is a phase 1B open label with 60 patients, and this is in combination with ublituximab. The preclinical data shows a nice profile. There's one paper that I looked at, the first author, Boitois et al., and they published this in 2018 in Molecular Cancer Therapeutics. When I took a look at it, it looked pretty good. Preclinical data seems to look pretty good, though, in general. But the molecule here, TG1801, had a minimal impact on non-human primate blood or platelet counts, which is really nice. And then they showed nice phagocytosis of B cells by macrophages from various different NHL patient populations that were treated with NI1701. So I'm just going to blow up that data here. And they took blood from all these patients, and when they treated it with NI1701 or TG1801, they saw that there was a nice level of increased phagocytosis in line with rituximab, which is the third column here. Um, it did better than rituximab and ALL, but again, this is an ex vivo type experiment, and because it's preclinical, we have to take it with a grain of salt. And this is going to lead in quite nicely to us talking about cassava sciences. But the one kicker here is that TG Therapeutics is a B cell focused company. And because this antibody is CD47 CD19 bispecific, and CD19 is specifically expressed on B cells, the total addressable market is limited quite a bit. It's not going to have much potential in solid tumors. So for that reason, I think we need to be careful in our expectations with this specific molecule. So we'll see how it goes. I'm gonna be looking for the clinical data expected in Q4 of 2021 or Q1 of 2022. The next company I want to talk about is Shattuck Labs, and they're trading at a $900 million market cap. And they're using what they call Agonist Redirected Checkpoint, and this is a platform where they're using to develop a new class of molecules. And what this platform can do is create these molecules with multiple different trimers. And here the example is 12 different binding domains, and this has multiple different binding valencies, which is ideal for a certain type of receptor that can cluster together on the cell. 
And how I want to explain this is that the normal antibody or the normal ligand receptor interaction that we see is just one-to-one. -one. And this isn't always biologically relevant because oftentimes there's receptors in the cell that cluster together in multiple valencies. So you'll, the example they use here is TNF-alpha. And what this receptor does is it's multiple different TNF-alpha receptors on the cell. And in order to get an ideal reaction, you want to have multiple TNF-alpha ligands binding to that in order to transduce enough of a signal and get the desired outcome that you want. So in the example here that we're seeing, SL172154 is their anti-CD47 drug. And what the goal is, is to provide a number of different binding valencies against CD47 so that they get a more strong blockade than you would with just say a simple one-to-one -one binding stoichiometry. Now, that isn't also a good characterization of the simple antibody binding because if there's multiple epitopes on a receptor, you might have multiple antibodies binding to that receptor. So all of this is to say Shattuck is trying to create a stronger effect by having this multiple binding domain molecule in order to cause the desired outcome. So for SL172154, it is six SIRP alpha binding domains. There's then an inert IgG4FC and then two CD40L trimers. And CD40L is able to provide stimulation to antigen presenting cells, the immune system. So even though there is an inert FC, there is the CD47L that's going to activate the host immune system to target the target cell or the tumor cell for some kind of effect phagocytosis, I think there's other types of effects that CD40 can have on the host immune cell, but the fact is that it's not just as easy as the ALX oncology type asset, it's probably more similar to Trillium's asset. The company seeking indications in ovarian cancer, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, as well as blood cancers, AML and MDS. And so one readout that I think is interesting is this upcoming data that's going to be presented at SITSI in November of 2021. And this is the clinical development of SL172154 in ovarian cancer. They're looking at tumor types, ovarian, fallopian tube, as well as primary peritoneal cancers. And the company's in a dose escalation trial right now. They said that as of Q2, they're planning to enroll the 10 mg per kg dose and up to now, they've seen no evidence of anemia, thrombocytopenia, CRS, or liver dysfunction. So the fact that this company is at this stage right now in solid tumors, I think we're kind of getting the best of both worlds when it comes to ALX oncology, as well as Trillium. So I think there's a good chance that they're going to see monotherapy activity because the molecule itself might have more activity given that it's this multiple binding valency type molecule. And they're also looking in solid tumors, which my one critique of Trillium was that they were so much into blood cancers that they were losing the potential excitement in the market of being in solid tumors. And they were moving in that direction before the acquisition, but I thought that the fact that they were moving too slow in solid tumors was part of the bare argument. With Shattuck that we're seeing here, they have a molecule that is likely to have monotherapy activity in my opinion, and they're in solid tumors, so I like them. I think I'm gonna take an investment before this presentation in Sitsi, and depending how that goes, I might cold or 
sell off depending on how things shake out. But uh, I think Shattuck is an interesting company and for that reason, I'm going to take a position. With that, let's get to Cassava Sciences, ticker symbol SAVA. They're trading at $50.20 a share, giving them a market cap of $2 billion. Their Q2 2021 net loss was $5 million. Their current assets sit at $279 million, with current liabilities of $5 million. And the company is developing a drug called Simufalam for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. They claim that this is a novel mechanism that targets altered filament A. And they say that targeting of altered filament A confirmation and fixing it to a normal confirmation has an improvement in biomarkers associated with Alzheimer's disease as well as cognitive function. Now, I've covered this company a number of times. I covered the reasons why I didn't think it was a great investment. And to be fair, I was wrong on that. I think when I said I wasn't going to take a position, the company was trading at like $6 a share or so. And I sold my position at around $3 a share or so. I am not the best authority on trading Kazava Sciences because people who didn't listen to me probably made a lot of money. Now, where the company stands today and the reason why we're talking about them is that they had a recent controversy due to a citizen's petition filing from Labaton Suchero, and they filed this to the FDA asking that the agency puts a clinical hold on the future development of Simufalam because of the details of this report. And this report characterizes a number of different alleged frauds from a whistleblower from, and I don't think they give too much detail on this, whether it was like inside the company or part of the lab that did a lot of the data. But the data package includes allegations of fraud in both the preclinical manuscripts as well as data provided by Sava and colleagues. So to give a bit of a timeline here, August 24, 2021, we heard from Sava that they announced an agreement with the FDA on a special protocol assessments of the phase three studies. And what this means is that if Sava delivers on this pre-specified endpoint that they've agreed with the FDA on, they are very likely to get approval. And I think other companies that have an SPA, Ameren was one, even though that was a very complicated situation, but getting an SPA bodes very well for the endpoints. It clearly lays out what the company has to deliver on in order to get approval. The day after Saba had a press release on this, the public notice of the citizens petition filing was announced. So August 25th, we got this data package and there's a letter to the FDA. There's a data package that shares all of the different allegations against the preclinical data that supports a mechanism behind Simufalam, as well as some uh, allegations against what Saba provided in their press releases and their data packages. The day after that, we hear from Saba some kind of fact versus fiction style defense in a press release form. I thought that was kind of comical. And then the day after that, we heard from a company called Quanterix, and they released a statement claiming that they engaged with Saba about biomarker analyses, but they say that they did not interpret the results. And so uh, Quanterix looks like they were the company involved in processing the biomarker data originally, and I'm going to talk about that in the next slide, but Saba never alleged that Quanterix was involved in the interpretation, but Quanterix felt it necessary to provide a press release saying that they only engaged with them about the biomarker analysis. So it seems like there's a bit of distancing from Quanterix, even though I don't think Sava alleged that they were involved in the data interpretation. 
Sava responded saying that this was true, but this had a negative effect on the stock because I don't think people quite understood how the relationship was from the outset. Then from August 28th to September 2nd, we saw various different groups come out from the woodwork saying that scientific fraud was at play here and they just all piled on Sava throwing them under the bus. And to an extent, it's rightfully so, but I think that once there's blood in the water in terms of a potential fraud allegation, it's so easy for people who love jumping on, love piling on to continue to add to the bear thesis. So we're really getting both sides now of the Saba bulls coming out, trying to defend the company, and then the Saba bears who keep piling on, uh, sifting through the old material of Saba and showing why they think that there's additional reasons to be bearish on the company. And then the last thing that we saw is that September 3rd, the CEO provided an audio explanation on why fraud isn't happening. I think this is pretty gratuitous. The CEO is definitely a controversial figure. I'd say he's a little bit arrogant and I don't think needed to provide this audio and only did more harm than good because he just provided more fodder for the bears to jump onto. So it is what it is, but that's where we're at today. All right, so my take on this, I thought Sava was shady from their 2020 news of the reanalysis of the biomarker data because what we heard in early 2020 was that the biomarker data from their phase two trial showed no trend. It was all kind of convoluted data in patients that were treated from baseline to test group. I think it was 30 days in Sumufalam. Then what we heard in the later part of 2020 was that they reanalyzed the biomarkers from an academic lab, and this academic lab data showed a very significant trend in biomarkers that all went in the right direction, showing that Samufalam really did have an effect on Alzheimer's disease biomarkers. They also showed a cognitive benefit, although it was relatively modest. I don't think it was significant by any normal uh, statistical analysis, but they did mention that there was a modest cognitive benefit. And then with this improvement in biomarkers, the stock rallied quite a bit on that. And I think what we know now is that the data was likely originally produced from this company called Quanterix. And then when they didn't get the data that they liked, they sent the samples to this Burns and Wang lab and they reanalyzed the data and it all magically looked the way that Cassava wanted to you know, give the pretense for them to move the molecule forward. Now the stock actually rallied on much higher highs based on the open label data from early 2021. So this is clinical data now. We're, we're done with the preclinical stuff. The stock moved really high when Saba announced that there was an improvement in ADAS-COG-11 from test time point, I think it was three months compared to baseline. I think it was a 1.5 point improvement and they compared this to how other Alzheimer's disease trials go where patients usually do worse. So that 1.5 improvement looked pretty good at three months and this led to really, really higher highs in the stock. Now, I wanna mention though that the news that we got here is that the foundational studies that support a mechanism of action for Samufalam in Alzheimer's disease is likely compromised. But I wanna say that the Preclinical stuff is, it's nice, but it's not super relevant. I think the focus that the citizen's petition is having is that there's actually malice behind it and that the Burns and or Wang lab, uh, they promoted their results and they fudged the results in order to justify getting the drug through IND 
and getting it developed clinically. But as we know, about 50% of all published preclinical science cannot be reproduced. And it really does take getting a molecule into humans before we can see whether or not there's any beneficial effect. And we've seen this especially in the Alzheimer's disease sector, that drugs that show a good effect preclinically, show a good effect in phase one and phase two, end up failing in phase three. But it's not until they get to phase three in order for us to see whether or not there's a chance there. And really what cassava sciences is uh, guilty of is over-promising in their corporate presentation and all of their discussions with their molecule but it really does take us getting the drug into humans before we see whether or not there's an effect. So do I fully support the notion that the FDA should pull the drug? Not necessarily because Simufalon is relatively safe. Does it do anything? Probably not, but so many drugs are going through clinical trials and they don't do anything. The problem here is that cassava has mentioned over and over again how much Simufalon is likely to be this paradigm shifting drug. So in that sense, they've totally lied and overpromised to their patients and to their investors. The other distinction though is the fraud. So just because 50% of all published science is junk doesn't mean that there was malice involved. Whereas here, the law firm is really alleging that they were fraudulent in the data production. So oftentimes the uh, junk science, it could just be a small sample size or some biases that the researchers overlooked. But what the law firm is saying here that the drug should be pulled because it's fraudulently developed. And you know, there's complicated things here. I think Wang is part of the scientific advisory board for cassava and Burns is the PI on a, a number of different projects. And that's also the wife of the CEO. So there's a lot of moving parts here which make it quite a spicy story. There are risks to having a bull and a bear position now in this stock. Whether or not the FDA makes a decision to halt or not will move the stock in either direction. The University of New York, the City University of New York, might announce an investigation into Wang, who still has a lab there. Uh, Wang himself might come out and pro provide some information. We don't really know what to expect. And then Cassava is planning to release more open-label data in Q4. And you know, because there is blood in the water, there might be more whistleblowers that come out. So for me, I'm staying away from Sava. I think. The one thing, there is relatively high implied volatility in options, so if you want to do some kind of short volatility play in the short term, uh, you could do that. But for me, I'm staying away. The reasons that I outlaid before any of this scandal should make investors caution holding a position, but we are likely to see big moves in either direction based off any of these potential outcomes. So. You know, I think the takeaway from this is that CNS is still a really hot space and I want to bring up six different companies very briefly in the different kinds of readouts that we could see and you know, I'm giving my opinion on whether or not I think it's worth it to go long or short based off of the readout. But very quickly, Cortexime, $2.6 billion enterprise value. They have pivotal phase two, three data in mid-November coming out. And note that they stopped the open label extension study due to hepatic safety problems. So because this company has such a big valuation here, I think they're worth shorting on this. And I think I might put some kind of relatively small options play or something like that into shorting into the data. Next company, Cyclerion, they're trading at only a $78 million enterprise value. They have phase 2A MELAS data coming before the end of the year. I'm long on the company. I think there's a good chance that they're going to show some kind of modest effect and the company's stock price will go up on that. 
Humanity or YMTX, again, a really small market cap, $71 million enterprise value. They have phase 1B Parkinson's data in the fall. I'm long. I think that the upside is much higher than the downside, even though it is a high-risk readout. Elector is another company that has some data coming up. It's not their normal program that was important in this GSK collaboration. They have only a $1.4 billion enterprise value because of the big GSK payment that they're expected to receive in collaboration for AL101 and 001. But what the company's about to present is Phase 1B Alzheimer's disease data from AL003, which is their SIGLEC3 molecule. They're going to have that before the end of the year. So for me, I'm kind of neutral, but you know, at a $1.4 billion enterprise value, and they have so many other molecules, it could be worth going long. I personally am just going to stay away, but I'm going to keep an eye on it. Anovis is another company I've talked about, $240 million enterprise value. They're going to be releasing the full Phase 2 data set in September of this year. I'm neutral on the stock only because their corporate presentation is very messy. It's not really clear uh, to see exactly what's going on. They don't use any error bars in any of their graphs, so we really don't know the standard deviation of the standard error that well. And because it's a small patient population, I'm kind of cautious to take any kind of position. So I'm neutral on Anovis. Anivex is another company, $1.3 billion market cap. They have a phase two and three in adult and pediatric rest syndrome coming in the second half of this year. They also have phase 2B and 3 Alzheimer's disease data coming in H2 of 2022. So we have to wait quite a while for the Alzheimer's disease data, but rest syndrome is a viable indication that they've started to see some good data in. I don't know if I'm going to take a position for that readout. The Alzheimer's disease data I would take a position on, but that's where I'm at. So CNS space is still very hot uh, since the sell-off from the AAIC data. And I'm going to play certain things I announce on Twitter when I make my position. So I'll touch on my portfolio wrap-up soon, but that's the CNS space. So upcoming catalysts that I'm looking at, really in September, October, it's the Apellis readout, as well as Regenix Bio and ClearSide. The data which they're presenting is October 1st, and that's going to be interim data from the Aviate Cohort 1. Now, the Apellis readout is coming in September. It could come like tomorrow, and this is the phase three in geographic atrophy. The company's trading at like a $5.5 billion market cap, so there is a ton of room to go either up or down depending on the data. And check out my video from a few episodes ago where I talked in more detail about geographic atrophy, but the discussion's been re reinvigorated because there's a readout coming in the short term. And what I think a lot of the bear arguments have been made on, besides the other stuff, there's issues with the safety and the new exudation with patients who are treated with it, but a lot of it I think comes down to the fact that so many patients were off of treatment over the course of the treatment period. What this graph is showing is the percent of patients who remain on treatment over the course of the treatment period. And what we can see here is that of the patients who received Pegsitacoplan monthly, only 60% of them remained on treatment by the 12-month mark. The effect was less pronounced in the Pegsitacoplan every other month, which makes sense because it was a every other month injection, so it's easier to stay on treatment. But 
because only 60% of patients were on treatment, people are positing that if it was a treatment that was having a positive effect in patients or if it had only modest side effects, you wouldn't expect patients to remove themselves from treatment. Now, the thing about that is if we go to another chart that Apelis showed, and this is from their phase two published data, so check that out there. We see here that patients, even though they were removed from treatment, they managed to stay on study. And I think that the difference here, the distinction is that they still came in to be evaluated, but they didn't want to take the treatment anymore. And so we see here that in the PEGS to tackle plan monthly, 84% of patients stayed on the study, so I assume that means that they are being evaluated, but they weren't actually getting the pegsetacoplan monthly injections. And now what were the reasons for the dropout? You can go in more detail on the paper. They go into that, but I think the takeaway here is the actual data that we're looking at. And when we see here the LS mean change from baseline, look at the end numbers here. In the sham pool, we have an N of 80, we have every other month of 78, and of the monthly group, we have an N of 80. And this is based on their modified intent to treat population. And here's how they describe that in the methods. The MITT population was used for the efficacy analysis and was defined as all patients who received at least one injection and underwent at least one follow-up examination at month two or later at which primary efficacy data were collected. So all of this data is based off of this MITT patient population. And if we see here, you know, so what does this actually include, these 84 patients in the Pegsetacoplan monthly group? And if we go back here, at 12 months, only 60% of patients were actually on treatment, and that's 60% of 86 patients in the monthly group. But they're including here 84 patients in this treatment group, if I'm believing this data. They're not mentioning here that at 12 months, this goes down to like 50 patients. And I could be reading this wrong, but what I'm taking this to mean is that at 12 months, this 0.26 data point is based off of 84 patients. And of those 84 patients, only 60% of them are actually on treatment. I could be wrong about this, but this suggests to me that there is a pretty lasting effect in patients that were treated with pegs to tackle plan, and that even though they're off the treatment at 12 months, they're still seeing this effect since they're, they're still being analyzed for the study. So I could be wrong about this, and I really think that the Apellis readout is too much of a binary event for me, and I'm not gonna take a position in either direction because the company is, is at such a high valuation here, and that it could go really in either direction because of all the different things that are involved with it. But I want somebody to challenge me on this. Maybe I'm reading this wrong and that in fact the end number that they're showing here is only the end number at like zero and then at 12 months here, this is actually an N of only 55. But if I am to take the definitions as they're written here, I assume this to be that 84 patients are included in this 12 month analysis and that even though 60% of them are only getting the treatment, 40% are off treatment, they're still seeing this effect, which I think would be a vote in, in favor of a bullish position. Anyway, that's Apellis, I wanted to put that out there. And to just do a quick portfolio wrap up to finish off the episode, 
just to you know take a look at our trillion position here we uh, closed out at 223.5 percent i sold all my position there i also mentioned that i sold my viking therapeutics position at a loss because there's just not enough catalysts for me to justify it i should have sold this a long time ago but i, I have a tendency to hold positions for a longer time than i should I added a little bit of Regenix Bio, and because I'm sitting at 11% of my portfolio, I don't think I'm going to add much more. But a few companies that I'm starting to look into adding, one is Cyclerion in anticipation of that MeLast readout. Another one is Checkpoint Therapeutics because of that Q4 readout. I'm thinking about adding TGTX in anticipation of the uh, Ultra-V trial results or the CD47, CD19 buy specific. And then I'm also thinking about adding a Shattuck position in anticipation of that Q4 readout. So those are the stocks I kind of have my eye on and kind of the notable things here. The big move up from Trillium has brought me to 1% year to date, which, you know, it's not great compared to the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones, but I am very happy to see that. Going from negative 14 to 1.2%, I will take it. And I now have a cash position of around 25%. So I'm looking to deploy that. And those companies that I mentioned there are what I'm going to focus on. So that's what I got for you guys today. I really appreciate the support. Please click that like or subscribe button. And if you want me to interview any of your favorite CEOs, email their investor relations department and tell them they want to see the CEO on Breaking Biotech. And I will gladly have them on. So with that, thanks again, everybody. And we'll see you next time.